You're listening to the Charge Forward audio blog by Chargebacks 911, bringing you the latest in payments and fraud. To learn more about how Chargebacks 911 can help you reduce chargebacks and recover revenue lost to fraud, visit us online at chargebacks911.com. This episode is a replay of a webinar entitled How to Overcome the Effects of COVID-19 on Chargebacks, featuring experts from Chargebacks 911 and WorldPay. got disconnected so if we can kick it over uh, to you guys to start introductions we'll work to get him back here in just a moment sure so i'll start uh, my name is monica eaton cardone and i'm the co-founder and coo of chargebacks 911 and i'll hand it over to mark good afternoon everyone i'm mark dinkin i'm the head of finance for smith's toys uk and ireland so we are the leading specialist toy retailer in that region, and um, I'll pass you over now to David. Hi, David Cotts, uh, Head of Disputes Resolution of EVA for Europe and LAC, as well as the Global Head for the Dispute Strategy and Operations Team of EVA. So I think, um, let's go ahead, uh, maybe Jessica, if you can advance to the first slide and we'll wait for Simon to join us. I know that there was recently a survey done um, by WorldPay from FIS and some amazing statistics have come out. We know that the chargeback world is definitely not simple and it's becoming even more complex with almost nine out of 10 firms having reported a loss of revenue due to payment fraud. So fraud is becoming a more challenging problem because of omni payments, more payment channels, et cetera. And more than half, 52% have reported to spend between one and 5% of their profits just managing payment fraud. That on top of the fact that 82% of customers are significantly concerned about payment fraud, well, we all know this is one of the reasons why we're here today, to learn more about chargebacks and more about how to prevent and tackle some of these fraud challenges in the wake of COVID and, and redefining the new normal. So while we're still waiting for Simon, uh, let's go ahead and launch the, um, if we can get your feedback, we have a polling question. Um, if you can tell us how have your chargebacks been over the last 12 months? Have they gone up? Please answer the question for us and then we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more. And while you're while you're um, talking, while you're answer, while we're getting more and more answers to this question, um, let's. I, I'd love to hear from Mark because I know that Smith's has an amazing reputation for literally being the best toy store ever. My kids are huge fans. Um, how have you had to adjust um, just with how payments have changed? Um, how, how is how what kind of adjustments have you guys had um, in terms of new fraud challenges um, from COVID? Sure, Monica. I, I suppose that the last year was exceptional. So in a normal year with Smiths, probably 13% of our turnover is online, and the rest is in the bricks and mortar store. So we'd probably probably be would be comparable to any high street retailer really that was flipped on its head in 2020 where 44% of our transactions were online and as you mentioned as well it's not just simple online where it's delivered it, it's click and collect it's pre-order so by giving the customer all these options you're actually increasing the kind of risk points uh, friendly fraud obviously was was massive in the last probably two to three years but even more so in 2020 where it was difficult to get a POD um, to prove that something was delivered. Um, just to, to answer the polling question, even with our increase in turnover, we did actually manage to um, keep our chargebacks at more or less the same level as the previous year. 
So that was a, a great result considering the increase in revenues. Not always possible, I know, for depending on what um, sector you operate in. But we we find by having a kind of a good team and like you're only as good as your 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 weakest link. We we very good couriers, especially last year because you had the Xbox and Playstations, which people could buy for three hundred pounds and sell online for seven hundred. Um, we had a very good relationship with our courier. They did a really good job of getting deliveries and and to to the right people. Uh, but it, it's a massive challenge because you've just got so many different touch points, and you also want to protect your genuine customer as well. So you have to protect the customer that actually didn't get the delivery rather than penalizing everyone. So very turbulent year, but I think with the right kind of systems and people in place, we actually did an okay job, I think, of, of managing it. Yeah, that that is amazing even to confront, um, you know, really just an almost immediate structural shift to all these different types of payment methods. <laughs> Pretty much, you know, things have taken quite a, a, a challenge in, in finding balance. Well, huge congrats to you guys. Um, it sounds like you've really put your focus in the right place. Um, and and David, from uh, from Visa's perspective, I know there's like new tools and a lot of momentum in helping to really, you know, par down some of the friendly fraud. Um, what 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 is what is Visa saying, or what what would you say is maybe some of the best defenses that you've identified over the last year to help curb some of the friendly fraud growth? Um. The direction Visa is heading, and, and I think anyone um, would need to head to really combat friendly fraud, is how to better use data. Um, we're looking to enhance the data and enrich the data we see in our network and obviously the one we then use in turn to, to, to manage disputes to better identify scenarios that can be classified friendly fraud or first party fraud as we like to call it. Uh, no fraud is ever friendly, so it's first party <laughs> fraud. Um, to then articulate potential options for, for uh, in, in our world, we, we, we talk about liability of that fraud. And so the direction Visa's heading is to use data, uh, more enriched data, more broad sources of data to make these determinations. That that makes sense. I know, um, you know, when it, it it is challenging, and just so many merchants today have multiple acquires, and it's it's difficult, even like you know, developing the expertise to understand what all that data means. Um, I I know, um, you know, understanding the reason codes and some of the changes is, or I guess the reason code changes. Um, is definitely part and part and parcel to figuring out, you know, what your chargebacks tell you. And in terms in terms of fraud and being able to identify fraud, I'm I'm just interested, Mark. I know you guys have uh, you've done a lot to help, you know, curb some of the fraud tendencies, like with Xbox, Playstations, as you were mentioning. Do you use the chargeback data? into your fraud filters how how do you how do you use that feedback um in order to help you identify friendly fraudsters or prevent criminal fraud yeah I'd like you know more data and more integrated data would be great but even on a kind of a manual basis at the moment we take the chargeback data we create kind of good lists and we create bad lists so if we see that somebody has a record of chargebacks with us maybe we'll give them the benefit of the doubt the first, the second time, but the third time that that person comes and looks for a refund or lodges a chargeback, we'll actually be a bit more aggressive in terms of defending it. Uh, so that, that's probably where we see the biggest benefit of the, of the chargeback data is kind of creating those blacklists so that you can get your really, really bad, your genuine fraudsters and also your friendly frauders as well, that you can kind of flag them at an early stage. But it is... I would say it's not a slick process at the moment, it's, and it's down to kind of good people and people being intuitive. So as David was saying, I think it would be great if there was something more integrated that would just flag these people up at the point they place the order. 
Yeah, yeah, no kidding. I, I mean, I know it's it's one challenge to get the charge back, and then many many merchants, you know, they don't have the the resources to match that back to the underlying transaction. But that's really where you have all that rich data, because you can help really analyze that and figure out what caused the chargeback in the first place. Um, I know from, from our view, we look at chargebacks are, it's some of the best data that you can get as a merchant. It's kind of like, you know, it sounds like a crude example, but if you went through um, your neighbor's rubbish or their garbage, you'd probably find a lot about them. <laughs> you, you'd find out where they buy, what they do. And with chargebacks, um, you can use this almost as a barometer to establish kind of, you know, how is your customer service doing? How is your fulfillment doing? And um, identify repeat fraudsters. Um, David, I totally agree. If we could get rid of the friendly component. This is definitely not friendly, but uh, that first party fraud, um, that's, that's really the name of the game. Um, in terms of uh, just regions, just just interested to, we we always have um, questions and interests just with different um, buying patterns. In fact, I saw a statistic earlier today that the UK is now topping the charts in terms of the most e-commerce or the the highest percentage of of e-commerce um, shoppers. Um, any stats from from Visa or or from you, Mark, in in what you're seeing behavior-wise with different consumer behaviors based on regions or countries? Actually, maybe I can jump in that. Sorry, Mark, David. Hi, everyone. It's Simon Potts. Hey, you're back. I, I, I apologize my late arrival. Uh, when the Wi-Fi suddenly drops and no error messages pop up on the screen and you think everyone is waiting patiently, silently for it to start, Oh, damn, I'm not online. Uh, so everyone, once again, I do apologize. My name's Simon Potts. I am the senior product manager looking after disputes for WorldPay from FIS. Uh, and I am slapping myself on the wrist. And I promise I will put some more coins into the uh, meter so that we don't get cut off going forward. But in answer to Monica's question, We've recently actually uh, at FIS have done a survey. Um, instantly, there's the view of the poll just now. Um, we've recently done a survey looking at where are we going to? Someone's put us onto the end slide. I am terribly sorry. He arrives late and totally fluffs everything up. Right, here we go. Right. So FIS have recently done a survey working with Forrester, looking at how things have changed in the last year. Um, and we've got some interesting stats on the screen. But we've asked our merchants, how much of the revenue have they lost due to payment fraud in the last 12 months? And 89% said they'd lost revenue due to payment fraud. Not surprising. But equally, 38 had lost more than 6% of their revenue due to payment fraud. Now, 6% of someone's salary is a significant amount of money. Um, so, it's, you know, fraud is a significant thing. It's why we care about it. Who am I? I've worked in fraud and payments for the last 25 years. And the reason why I've done that is because I care about payment fraud. It's something I'm passionate with. So when we then go on to ask to the merchants how much are they spending as part of their uh, revenue, as part of their fight and fraud, you know, 90% might be experiencing fraud, but 52%, 52% sorry, are spending between 1% and 5% of their profits. That is a sizable amount. But equally, it's less than the, the some are losing on fraud. So it's still, you know, a potential opportunity to spend more, to actually lose even less. Um, but curiously enough, as part of the survey, 4% did say that they're not spending any money to manage fraud. Um, so, dare I say, question for the team and indeed the audience to consider offline those who've said they're not spending any money to manage fraud, does the panel think that this is a true figure or are they actually not spending explicit money to manage fraud, but fraud is being managed explicitly part of the other 
products and services are part of their normal operation and they're not view they're not viewing any investment to fraud uh, let's throw that over to mark you know what mark as our tame sample of one merchant what's your view on this yeah, I find it hard to believe that any retailer that operates in an online environment, even at a very small level, can't have some spend on fraud because these fraudsters guys can they can smell a weakness a, a mile away. If you if you change any service providers or change your web platform or your gateway, these guys are straight in to take advantage of it. So I really can't see how anyone operating now can't have something in place. Now, whether that's outsourced or whether that's an internal team and if your volumes are small, maybe you can manage everything on a very uh, manual basis, like with, with a small team. But the other thing is now is people want same-day delivery. With click and collect, we give pickup in two hours' time. So we can't afford to wait all day to review orders. So it needs to be done quickly, and it needs to be done accurately. So I, I, I can't see how any company can't invest in that because... People are not going to wait, and they're going to get taken to the cleaners at some stage if they continue to operate without any kind of protection. Cool. Thank you very much. Now, David, over at Visa, question for you. I mean, on the same question, talking about the people not or claiming not to invest in fraud solutions. Do you maybe wonder that they are just viewing as cost of carrying payments as being the overall operating cost? And of course, part of the carrying payment is the implicit fraud protection that you know they may be getting from CB nine one one, FIS, et cetera, et cetera. David, what what's your thoughts on this? Um I would challenge anyone who who's uh, saying they don't spend money on fraud, that 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 may not be a true statement. It's it is what you've just said. It's imp it's potentially implied in the general nature of the the, the payment. Um, Visa, obviously, um, we our primary customers technically are, are issuers and acquirers, and so our our view of this is always that as a merchant, you want to have a strong partnership with your acquirer. Your acquirers, if you've got multiples, um, they can act as a, as a front line to all of this. So you may not feel you are directly uh, investing in fraud protections, but you would be indirectly by working with your acquirers and obviously FIS Worldpayer, someone who will be acting in the background to a certain extent without you maybe realizing what they're doing in regards to fraud protections. But on top of that, so are the networks. Uh, we spend a large sum of money and time and effort on, on 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 monitoring, managing fraud at a network level, at a scheme level as well. So it is potentially implied that you're getting some protection from your partnerships or, or the schemes. Um, so by default, you're spending it because you, 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 you're, you're engaging in that, in that process. Um, if you're genuinely saying, if someone generally answers the question as no, um, then I would suggest that maybe there is a way to to change that dynamic with very little overhead or infrastructure by talking to your partners. Then, so that that, that the examples that um, that have been given so far, like Max, for example, you know, you can implement that. It's, but I believe it's implied in some cases. I, I think that's probably where that answer might be coming from. That's my take. Uh, that there's an assumption that someone's taking care of it for me. Um, but, but, yeah, I would say that's probably why someone would answer that. It wouldn't make sense to me that the answer should be no, though, to be honest with you, because I think we are all investing, or should be if we're not, in the uh, overall fraud issue. I think as well, David, that there, there may be an expectation that people think that 3DS is the answer to everything. So... And we know that it isn't, but maybe that was part of the response that people think that, well, I have exactly. here, so I don't need anything else. I'm, I'm trying to answer it as best as I can, because I, 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 I'm scratching my head why someone would say no to that question. <laughs> <laughs>
I must admit, I, I wonder if it's a case of didn't properly understand the question or they didn't have full possession of the facts of the way the business operated, that they thought, yes, we just pay the fraud guys and they get on with it. And I, I often think that from a fraud protection, businesses sometimes, unfortunately, form into the Harry Potter way of doing things. Namely, they're locked away under the stairs with a lock on the outside of the door because the fraud team are locked in there. They're not allowed to come out because if they come out, they're going to prevent sales. Um, personally, I always feel that the fraud team should have the lock on the inside of the door because sometimes the fraud team does need to investigate things that are sensitive to the rest of the business. Uh, Monica, can I hear you laughing in the background? Appreciate that. So as part of the poll we've had earlier on the screen now, now shockingly or un unsurprisingly, nearly three quarters have said their chargebacks have gone up in the last 12 months. Um, why would you think that one in seven have said their chargebacks have not gone up in the last 12 months? The Green Noba, what's your thoughts on that? Um, I might come in there, Simon. So I, please, think, I, think it depends in, I think it depends in the industry you're operating in. So obviously like, we're a good example of a company that had an exceptional year, probably due to COVID, our, our sales increased and our chargebacks didn't. I think if you're operating in one of the other areas like airline and travel, you probably got absolutely hammered on chargebacks. So it's very much to do with, with, with the industry. So I would say any of the kind of fast moving consumer goods probably benefited. Um, obviously more orders going through 3D secure. And then there were certain industries that probably had a really, really bad year on chargebacks. So I think that that's probably why you're getting such a that's where the 14% is probably coming from the exception rather than the, the rules. And, and dare I say, I, I would wonder that those that are dealing with mail order uh, problems and indeed, you know, the, the problems with postal services under COVID have been well publicized around the world already. But the problems encountering in the postal service are effectively just an extension of the problems that have already happened pre-COVID of delivery intercepts and false addresses, et cetera, et cetera. So the, you know, the, the delivery products or problems within COVID, there's nothing new. So they've already been answered in advance. Um, yeah, from a visa perspective, we've, we've seen an interesting flow. Uh, obviously, early March, April last year, we saw a natural increase in disputes, but not in the fraud space. Um, we still haven't seen a significant fraud increase in disputes, even now. Um, when you look at it in, 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 in a pre and post isolation, Right, so if you go pre and post, have you seen big changes in fraud? The answer is no. We have in the services disputes, and that's in the nature of what's happened with COVID. Um, yeah. And obviously, the larger industry in input, the largest industry impact is travel and, and holidays and etc. In your retail space, um, it's what you said, Simon. It's an extension of things that were already happening before. And it's just because of the nature of sales going online and deliveries going, uh, you know, less face-to-face -face deliveries, uh, less face-to-face -face pickups, more deliveries on on through through delivery channels. The problems that are there or were there before are just extenuating into new businesses because they've moved their model online right, versus being face-to-face. -face. So it's a new, it's a new experience for some merchants because they've had to change the way they transact. So um, the, we only have seen a significant peak in the travel space, in the services not rendered scenarios. Everything else has been what we would consider a natural uh, extension of the change in consumer behavior and the change of the transaction. Yeah, I, I, I would say from, from our stance, likewise, I think, um, you know, you've seen just a surge of momentum with new merchants coming into e-commerce. Well, we would expect naturally there's going to be a much higher chargeback percentage in e-commerce. So statistically, you know, the 
redefining the new normal is something that has been somewhat predictable. And with the surge of e-commerce, well, you're also developing different consumer habits, different spending. Um, some of the friction has been reduced in you know the the process that is taken to file a chargeback and create a claim. And there's been more emphasis on consumer education um, and making sure that consumers know their rights, really because we've been in kind of an unstable environment, one with a lot less financial security for, for a lot of folks. And because of that, it's necessary that, that consumers are aware of what rights they have. The, the new process that, that may be available to them by contactless or buy online, pick up in store, um, purchasing online where they, they prior, maybe they hadn't done so very much. So new breeds of fraud, new breeds of merchants coming into omni-channel um, type of environments and also changes in consumer behavior. And I think, you know, we're, we're getting to a point where it's not just um, we, we're redefining a new normal with statistics that we could pr have predicted based on what we would expect from e-commerce, mobile channels, et cetera. Um, but it's, it's becoming, you know, this is now the new way going forward is much more of a digital age and even consumer behaviors. We have younger consumers um, as well as older consumers. So uh, that online transaction is now becoming a normal uh, trend on, on every spectrum. So cool. data cool. is key. <laughs> I will underscore David's I, point. Understanding the I, data is, is absolutely key. I totally agree. I mean, it's my, my background is I've lived in data. I've swum in data. I breathe data. I think I was cutting uh, SQL, well, certainly 20 years ago, if not, well, I think more decades than that, then I give away clue a few gray hairs. Question for the audience. Um, and you know, it's like, oh, they're, they're talking to us. Yes, I'm talking to you. Um, question for you. You've some of you will have, have already been putting some questions in the Q&A chat box. Appreciate that. And we will try and get to these as much as we can as part of this call. If not, we are hoping to do other calls later this year. And we'll come to this in other fora, you know, as time progresses. But a question, what has your current chargeback challenge? What, what, where are you having problems with? Put that in the text, in the uh, Q&A chat box now and yeah, it'll be very interesting to see because we can maybe see some thoughts of that as we go forwards and equally it will colour conversations as we talk about things in the future. Uh, sorry Monica, I was jumping in there. Um, but maybe just moving on. I've seen a couple of questions already pop up in the chat box talking about some initiatives. I think one was about uh, APIs allowing merchants to avoid uh, chargebacks in advance and saying, hang a sec, is this not facilitating uh, some fraudsters being able to gain the system? I you know, question that first of all occurs to me is how many fraudsters are aware of such technology? Yes, fraudsters are savvy, but on the flip side, a lot of the fraudsters are just giving it a go. Uh, but equally, surely our systems, our being financial services as a world, it are sufficiently robust that we should identify fraud regardless of whether they've cut me you a know, bypass to charge back, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, are we being naive and thinking fraudsters are just caring about monetizing corrupt uh, credit card details, maybe there is a bigger fraud question here. I think when it comes to fraud, it's a it's a double-edged sword. Um, so just like you were mentioning earlier with uh, the Harry Potter example, I love that analogy. <laughs> the lock should be on the inside. Um, but you have, you know, it's always a battle of, and Mark mentioned this as well, um, auth rates, uh, versus, you know, having think, feeling like you have too many false positives and, and retooling your fraud filter and blocking more. Um, so, you know, I think this still comes right back down to data 
and experience and recognizing, you know, we're in a new frontier with lots of new technology, terrific advancement on just about every level. I think a stat I read recently is 10 years of, of evolution and, and advancement in literally less than a few months uh, with the onset of COVID and the move to digital. Um, so I think, you know, when it comes to chargebacks, from my perspective, um, it's so important to understand, you know, the invalid chargeback versus the valid chargeback or friendly fraud. I know a question just quickly I wanted to answer, what is friendly fraud came up? And this is, you could look at this as a chargeback that shouldn't have happened. Um, this is an invalid chargeback or a, a, when a consumer uses the chargeback mechanism to obtain a refund that perhaps they didn't deserve or they, they failed to contact the retail retailer first. Um, but identifying the, the valid chargebacks from those invalid chargebacks and then using that data correctly is, is absolutely paramount in, in being able to solve the growing fraud problem, or I guess changing fraud problem. Yeah, and just, just add to that, Monica, that's an even bigger challenge where you have people that are buying something in buying something in store and returning it online, or if they're buying it online and returning in store. So having that joined up data that is readily available to either the, the person in customer service or the person in the store that they can see, well, actually, I know that this guy has already got a refund or they've had two refunds already and we can we can raise an alarm. So it, it has to become more automated because I think the challenge at the moment is it's a very manual process and you're relying on people to, to spot things and stop it and people are not perfect, so it's going to slip through. So the more automated for me that can become, the better. But uh, I do take a point that you need to understand your chargebacks. So there's no point in kind of losing sight of it and automating everything because you could have an issue with a courier or something that if you didn't see that this courier had lots of chargebacks, you'd be oblivious to it. So there's a fine line between automating it, but also understanding it and, and understanding what's, what's kind of driving it. Good. And actually, going back to Monica's question about our statement about data and my love affair with data, um, just looking at the questions, uh, Eugenio, yes, I'm calling out someone by name. Um, he's written saying, looking at the data and specifically the reason codes associated with the charge bank, he goes on to say, it's very difficult to make educated decisions. Reason codes are very few and not often help the merchant to make a good decision. I think the key aspect here is that don't rely so much upon the reason codes, but the data. And Monica, you know, as dare I say, the queen of defending chargebacks or disputing chargebacks. You know, what's your view on? You've dare I say, you've made a living out of uh, disputing chargebacks. Um, you know, you know, not relying upon reason codes without giving your secret source away. Maybe you do want to give your secret source away. Um, yeah, what, what's your thoughts on this? Uh, you know, so a chargeback is, if you think of it, it's like a puzzle. And in order to, and you just have so many pieces. So you, you have to recognize, and this, it helps if you don't even see yourself as a victim. I know it's hard as a merchant. I, I was an online merchant myself once. And, you know, if, but if you think a chargeback really is a problem for everyone in the entire industry, it's even a problem for the consumer because filing, even if they're getting away with these chargebacks, eventually it's going to come back to bite them because prices will increase, their liberties will go away. It's just not good for anyone. Well, when you get a chargeback, you're receiving a chargeback. If it is a valid, if it's invalid, which means as a merchant, you shouldn't have gotten that chargeback. Maybe you did ship the product and the consumer is just filing something saying it was fraud where it wasn't. Maybe you, maybe the consumer had their, their daughter charged the charge and it was authorized, but the parent is now having buyer's remorse. You know, whatever the case may be, the issuing bank only has a piece of the information. And so they are passing this charge back to the merchant and to the acquirer to get the rest of the puzzle. 
So you can't just look at the reason code alone. You're getting the charge back. The reason code tells you what type of evidence you need as a merchant to be able to dispute that and remedy the case and get your money back. But you have to get the rest of the pieces. You need to find out what caused the chargeback, get the underlining transaction data, do some research, and then prepare your response. And when I look at chargebacks, I divide them into three buckets to make it simple. It is a complex world. You have to understand all the rules and some of these rules change. But if you think, keep it simple, you have either chargebacks that are true fraud and they came from a criminal and you need to fix that, those chargebacks by improving your fraud filters or there's chargebacks that are merchant error. And these you can understand, take feedback from and fix problems internally. And then you have chargebacks that are friendly fraud. Um, and these are chargebacks that you should always defend and get your money back. And do so not within the way of destroying that customer relationship. If you do it right, you can rehabilitate that customer and help retrain that customer to buy from you in the future, but recognize that in the future, if they have a transaction issue, call you. Um, you can identify you know, the, the malicious friendly fraud from some of the more innocent friendly fraud attempts. The goal as a merchant is always, you know, protect your customers and build that that revenue as much as possible. And and chargebacks don't have to always be the most negative thing um, if you're if you're defending them correctly. But yeah, can't just depend Sorry, on raising codes. <laughs> Very much so. And indeed, what you're saying there loops back to something that was said earlier in the conversation that sometimes chargebacks can be a maybe un, unwanted, but nonetheless beneficial feedback of the customer experience. Maybe customers are charging back on transactions because they're finding the customer service experience to be not rewarding or frustrating and they're just lashing out, you know, or looking at different ways of, you know, resolving the issue. Uh, the questioner, I think Eugenio goes on to ask, I think, asking about other forms of data or other tools to uh, defend against chargebacks. The key word is data, data, data. So how is the product ordered? Where was the product ordered? Maybe look at digital device IDs potentially, especially in times of COVID where people are less mobile typically they are going to be using hopefully far less devices. And as such, you might be able to identify a, a commonality of behavior. They've made this chat transaction and charged it back, but they've made similar transactions in the past and not charged them back. So what's difference there? So it maybe give validation to this as a legitimate transaction that they're trying to wriggle out. Is there proof of consumption? Is there proof of delivery? Etc. Etc. In the and sometimes you know organisations may also want to look at the terms and conditions on their websites and share that with the you know the issuer to highlight you know this is the way that the terms of the uh, transaction initially occurred. Sorry, I just have to say one more thing, Simon. So something that um, and we should think of this, but definitely you know your acquire and I'm sure David can acknowledge this as well, is a member bank. They do business with Visa, they do business with MasterCard. They know intimately all of these rules. Um, many acquirers offer uh, chargeback solutions. FIS, WorldPay from FIS has you know great solutions and avenues to be able to help automate some of these, these really you know hard to find out decisions, understanding what to defend, even automating that whole process. Um, so don't don't forget to like call on experts that that you can trust, like your own acquired. Yeah, I think that, um, there's a couple of things I'd, I'd like to point out from a visa view of, of this. Um, I've seen a few questions around. You know, we launched VCR or the project VCR was was completed a few years ago, and it doesn't seem to have done anything. But statistically speaking, we've seen a reduction in chargebacks from from purely the the migration to our new way of doing disputes by about 10%. Uh, we've seen 10% less chargebacks going through the fraud channels than we were pre-VCR. So um, statistically speaking, it did make a difference. Um, it also used 
began the process of using data to determine liability for fraud versus um, uh, traditional back and forth between issues and acquirers, which is why the model was changed as well. Um, to your point, Monica, you know, again, to just to under, to just educate more than anything, um, Visa's rules apply to issuers and acquirers. So when we talk about liability of transactions, we don't talk about merchants or carholders. We talk about issuers and acquirers. They are the conduit to the, to the system, to, to the process. Issuers raise on behalf of carholders the dispute and acquirers challenge on behalf of the merchant, um, that whether or not that dispute is legitimate or not, uh, whether it's fraud or non-fraud. And so that relationship is extremely important. Um, the tools that you're working either with through your acquirer or in, in combination with your partnership with your acquirer or third parties for that matter, um, help combat this. Um, we always say that the merchant should only get chargebacks that they should receive and your acquirer should be partnering with you to cull out or remove the ones that you shouldn't see. Because again, a lot of it, it, it can be, uh, because of the education the acquirer has on this, the knowledge they have internally, they can help combat that and really only send you stuff you need, you should be answering or responding to, or, or, or in, in their view, liable for. Um, so it's important you set up a strong partnership with whatever channel you use, whatever mechanism you use to, to process transactions, because inherently that's your first defense of disputes. Cool. Um, next question, dare I say, from the floor. Uh, I think I'm going to throw this at t two of the, my friends on the panel, Mark and then Monica. Uh, comes in from Nadine. So Nadine, thanks very much. Uh, she's asking, can we provide ideas, hints, how to optimize the process to provide the right evidence to dispute a chargeback? Research to provide the right evidence, very manual process, as every case is different and needs an individual response. Um, to my mind, you know, I'll throw in my two pennies straight off is uh, template documents, fill in the blank, and have some ammunition that will be common to all defenses. So have a evidence pack that you fill in the blanks going forwards. Uh, that's my two penneth. But Mark, from, without giving your secret sauce away, what's your best uh, way to optimizing the way of getting the evidence to dispute a charge back? Yeah, I suppose just just to, to at the outset, Simon, to say that I suppose we're fortunate that we're dealing with physical goods, and I know a few of the questions have been in relation to services, which I can't comment on, and I can see is, is going to be a more complicated area. But in terms of us, in nine times out of ten, it's on it's on delivery of goods or non-delivery of goods. So we had to work closely with our carriers to make sure that we could get clear PODs that reference the transaction, and as you say, to have a template there that we're not kind of doing it from scratch every time so that you can get the responses and get them in quickly. So in some cases, you know, we, we had to work with our carriers to, to kind of upgrade. And for certain items like the Xboxes and Playstations this year that we, you know, we just had to have a 100% a, a buy-in that everything was signed for. Like there's no way you could leave a Playstation on somebody's door and hope that they'll get it when they come home from work. So, you know, it's really down to, and then even the customer service department as well, which in, in some cases can be removed from the people that are dealing with chargebacks. So I know in our company, it was chargebacks were seen as a finance function, which was kind of removed from customer service. But really the two have to work hand in hand. And really the, the, the customer service are probably the, the people that have most of the information that can help you defend the chargebacks. So... My advice would be to make sure that you have all your data lined up. As you as you mentioned, you have your templates and that if it is physical goods, that if it's high value, like you really need to have a, a solid POD that isn't a, a scribble that we actually went to taking pictures in some cases of, of the products being delivered. So a picture of, of the goods outside the house and that's saved down by the courier where there's no physical signature. So yes, there's a, there's a lot you can do, but you need to get all your ducks in a row ready. Thank you. And Monica, what, you know, you, you, as I say, the queen of chargebacks, what's your approach on this? So, so I would say, um, and and we work closely with uh, with Mark's team. They are amazing. Um, but you know, making sure that that you really carve out 
um, which which team, if they have to manually extract information, you know, develop relationships so that you have um, you're leveraging the expertise that you have with your acquirer. You understand exactly what's needed for each reason code, utilizing templates, um, but also you know don't rule out any type of data. The the job in defending your position in a chargeback is twofold. One, you need to understand all the rules and all the evidence requirements and make sure that you have you know, the right templates. If you need a, assistance with that, don't be afraid of, of leveraging expertise um, to help put those packets together. And then secondly, make sure that you have the story. So you're, you're delivering this to another human at a bank that's gonna read through this case. And so you really need to make sure that you simplify the story and you understand what happened. And then after that, don't just you know send the case and consider it a done deal. Take that information, internalize it, use it, and figure out what caused that chargeback and how you can improve your business to prevent those cases from happening again. Cool, cool. And going back to you, Mark, you're talking about proof of deliveries. Kevin asks or points out that couriers aren't getting signatures these days. They're just getting a photo. And indeed, you know, I had a delivery earlier today. And all he does is take a photo of an open doorway with a parcel in it. Well, my open doorway, from a personal perspective, is anonymous. It's a black door with a white frame. Doesn't and all you can see is well, you can see my feet. My feet aren't a pretty thing. I I, I apologise to the audience. You don't want to see a picture of them. Um, but there's nothing really to prove that I have taken the delivery. It's just an anonymous door with an anonymous pair of feet. This is not a you know. A, how is that a proof of delivery? Yeah, it's, it's a good question, Simon, and I have to say we, we haven't actually found a spike in that yet, so I don't know whether the fraudsters are maybe behind the curve here and that's going to come down the line. Um, it, it, it's, it, it's not 100% a, a guaranteed as a proof of delivery, but it's better, it's better than nothing, and I think as Monica says there, if you can, if you can put together a good story that makes sense, it, it, strengthens, your, um, it strengthens your response on the chargeback, but there's no easy answer because the, the, a lot of the couriers now are not going to, they're not going to get signatures. They might get a digital signature, but even at that, I know a lot of them now don't want to come in contact with anyone, which is, which is, um, is not unreasonable. But thankfully, touch wood at the moment, we haven't seen that in our business as a, as a spike. Yeah, I, I mean, dare I say, to my mind, as a, you know, someone who sometimes thinks like a fraudster, I think there is, dare I say, an opportunity there. So please, I hope there are no budding fraudsters on this call because we've just given them a wonderful training ex exercise. <laughs> it used to be but that if you, if you, it, sorry, I was just going to say, interestingly, it used to be that if you attempted to get a signature on a delivery, you would get more chargebacks because people were at work. <laughs> they, they weren't home to deliver it to, so you would get a charge back by failing to deliver quickly. Yeah, I mean, it's the whole, dare I say, charge back. It keeps us in business, but on the flip side, it is a self-fulfilling uh, self prophecy sometimes. Um, I, I think Monica, I should, uh, question, I, go, go ahead, sorry. Sorry, David. The only thing I would add, the only sort of hint or tip, uh, whichever way you want to, uh, Fraser um, is to also address address the actual dispute that's the claim being made. So when we when we look to train acquirers and issuers, uh, we use the word address address the true nature of the dispute. You you can spend an inordinate amount of time trying to respond to the dispute, um, painting a large picture without actually addressing the underlying reason for the dispute existing. So hopefully your acquirer has communicated clearly as to what the nature of the dispute is. You should fundamentally address that issue. Services not rendered, goods not not received. If it's a description error, the description part. If it's a delayed response, you know, whatever the circumstances might be, you should address it. It's fraud. You address the the, the angle of they've shopped with me before. They've had previous non-disputed transactions, etc. We do see a lot of a lot of 
fantastic documentation, but one of the crux of the issues is that they're not addressing the actual reason for the dispute existing. <laughs> so that would be my tip as well, is make sure you're actually touching on the underlying reason that the issue arose for the dispute. Yep, and th that's a very good point. And I think goes back to the earlier point of putting the evidence pack, as I called it, or response pack, you know, put together some templates of, and the first question as part of the response pack is, what was the cause of this chargeback? And if that then ties up with what the customer was complaining about, then it leads down to a very successful path of answering all the points within that. I'm conscious of the time. It's been a great session so far. We've got a few minutes left. So question from Monica is coming explicitly for you from Pirithipan. Uh, I dare say, I think I know who Pirithipan is. I recognize the name and his industry. Um, he says, we have a 365 issue uh, where the acquirer is denying to process refunds over for more than 365 days since the original purchase. I suspect that this is with overseas purchases. A uh, challenging issue for us because he's within the uh, travel industry because they have to raise a refund as a bank transfer, heaven forbid, and then nonetheless the chargeback is still coming back. Um, is there anything that we can do on this? Well, I think uh, this is probably a better question for David. I know that um, in the travel industry specifically, um, there's been a lot of discussion about allowing uh, vouchers, basically different forms of refunds in order to um, to validate, you know, here the customer received their money back. And I, I know there's been Visa and MasterCard for that matter have done a great job, um, you know, showing some compassion and, and being proactive. Uh, with making a few amendments to the way that rules operate so that they're they can accommodate scenarios like this so with that said I'll, I'll, I'll leave it to David for more specifics on that um, uh, if the questions around the timing of the refund and and, and the restrictions your acquirer puts in in the way of, of processing refunds after a certain period of time um, I can only answer that is that under our network there's no such restriction so you do need to work that through with your acquirer to figure out what, what is their basis for putting a restriction on on refunding after a certain time frame um it wouldn't be based on scheme rules because we don't have such a time frame we 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 have time frames in regards to when a when a refund is confirmed how long you should quickly how quickly you should process and we have time frames around errors but the genuine refund that we want to process there shouldn't be restrictions purely based on time frame. What there should be some restrictions on is if there's already a chargeback. And so if you've already received the chargeback, inherently the cardholders received the funds. So at the, to the best of your ability, if you are aware of a chargeback being raised from your acquirer, don't then try and try and process a refund because the cardholder has received their funds already through the act of raising the chargeback. Um, you know, it just it makes it more complicated for everyone and more time consuming for everyone to get to the end resolution. So David don't do that. On the question of vouchers, um, what I would say is uh, our our premise under our rules is that vouchers are not forms of refunds. They're at the choice of the cardholder. They're, they're, they're a consumer choice. Um, we're not saying don't offer refunds through the form of a voucher. We're not saying don't offer vouchers. We're not saying don't offer alternative booking options. Any of that is is okay. But the choice of what the cardholder receives, we believe, is left to the cardholder. So if the cardholder insists on a refund, then that's what we sh would want you to, to do. Uh, with that said, um, our, and so what we say in our rules is that the voucher is not a what we call a remedy. It's not the same thing as a as a refund. The only thing that truly cures a chargeback is a refund. All chargebacks have that rule. And so if you're trying to challenge a chargeback because you've issued a voucher, you have to do so under the premise that the cardholder made that choice and, 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 and almost articulate why that choice was made and under what circumstances that choice was made. And there's been no sort of change of mind or decision not to accept that or they... Uh, and most importantly, don't force it upon them. Um, and then you can you can challenge the dispute to try and explain to the issue they got a refund through a voucher. And 
um, you may want to argue that. But in the end, it's consumer choice. So we, we allow that. With that said, there are obviously timeframes on, on, on chargebacks. It's 120 days from the expected date of service. So um, when the voucher timeframe starts to run out, so to speak, or the 120 days has elapsed, you know, you begin to not need to worry so much about what vouchers are outstanding. Because if a, if a cardholder chooses a voucher initially, and then at a later point changes their mind or can't use the voucher or can't apply the voucher to a booking for whatever happens for whatever reason. Um, we have still got the same timeframes in place from a chargeback perspective. And so, issue, you know, cardholders can't suddenly six, seven months after the fact go back to the issuer to raise a chargeback because then they'll run out of time. So we do balance. And the reason I point that out is that uh, one of the big misunderstandings is that we have a very issuer friendly acquirer not friendly dispute process and and that's just not correct we our premise is to try and find balance so is the voucher a way to cure a chargeback no it's not is it a is it the choice of the cardholder whether they accept or not yes it is but at the same time if they do accept it and then months or years later decide they don't want to accept it we're not we don't allow you to come back to the chargeback process because you've run out of time so th that's the balance we try and put into it if the cardholder actively chooses a voucher and keeps it or tries to use it then that's what they should do but they shouldn't David, be forced just, on them but just quickly if 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 as i understand it so this particular uh question as well could be where the the merchant was forced to refund the cardholder through another means and then they get a chargeback of course there's no tie in that then right. wouldn't you advise they still need to dispute that chargeback provide evidence of the refund in order to in order to recover their funds if they in fact did refund regardless of whether the acquirer shouldn't be forcing them to do this um, if they're taking responsibility to give a refund then you know they don't need to they don't need to suffer the liability of receipt of providing the card or a double refund again the the principles here is a uh, first it's a timing issue is when did you refund and when did the chargeback come through if you've done this form of refund to an alternative means prior, prior to the chargeback again uh yes you can respond to the chargeback to say the cardholder received the funds through cash wire transfer check whatever it is those are not classified remedies though because the credit the refund should go back to the card so again back to the premise is um it's it's an odd premise because i've not heard scenarios where after 365 days uh, a limit has been placed by the acquirer on the act of processing a refund back to the card um because under our rules the only the, the the only reason to not do the refund back to the same card is if that card no longer exists or there's a problem without a card and it, and it can't be processed technically because the, the card number is no longer in use um, but other than that there should be a legitimate reason to refund so again i put it back a little bit on um what's the underlying reason for not being allowed to process it to the card with that yeah, said, I, yes, you can challenge it, um, but it's not a remedy. It doesn't cure the chargeback. It just simply is information to say, consumer, you've got money back twice. And because in the end, the, the issuer has to speak to the consumer and say, did you get that money back twice? Did you get that wire transfer? Um, and if not, that's that's the right of the cardholder to challenge that. But but again, yeah. the underlying premise for me is more about why why was there a restriction? They, they um, yeah, David, the child is a great subject, and I think we could speak for another hour. And the number of times okay. that I've been caused that have said that. <laughs> Conscious of the time, quick 15 seconds by everyone. Audience, we've got two poll questions. I've already popped the first one up. If you can have a quick look at that. The subject to this call, and I'll run, run around the, the three of you very quickly on this. It's not a normal year in chargebacks. What do folks need to know in 2021 based upon last year? David, 15 seconds for you, please. Um, uh, as you change your business model, moving to either from face-to-face -to, -face to online or vice versa, the nature of the chargebacks you're going to get is going to change. And so you need to be ready for that. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Mark, same question to you. What do folks need to know in 2021 for their chargebacks? 
I think they need to know that we're never going to go back to 2019. So hopefully we won't have 2020 again. But you know we're in a new environment now. They need to have all their systems lined up. They need to have all their teams lined up and their service providers because it's the volumes are going to increase in terms of online transactions for the majority of businesses. So now is the time to get your your ducks in a row, or else you're not going to survive. Because you know if the pro if there's a if there's a weakness in your process at any point, then you're going to you're going to leak revenue. Wonderful, uh, Monica. Yourself, fifteen seconds for you. Yeah, I would say um, when it comes to chargebacks, keep in mind there's there's three things that you need to um, hone in on. Uh, make sure that you're recovering revenue from invalid chargebacks. Make sure that you understand the data and use that to help remedy fraud in the future and make sure that you understand operational threat with the source of your chargebacks. And if you don't utilize these three areas that you're getting with chargebacks, then definitely um, contact contact experts in the industry like WorldPay from FIS um, to help you with solutions that that can get you there faster. Wonderful. Appreciate it. Everyone, thank you very much for your time. My 15 seconds is all I'll say is focus upon your data. Uh, the lessons learned, the next year is going to be no different to last year. There's going to be a lot of fun, a lot of excitement, a lot of challenges. Work with your acquirer. Uh, chargebacks are not a cost of doing business. It's revenue that you can reclaim back. Uh, everyone, thank you for jo joining us. Uh, Monica, David, Mark, thank you very much for your time on this. And finally, my apologies for my technical difficulties at the beginning. Thankfully, they were temporary and I've been been able to stay with you. Everyone, thank you. Um, there are questions, lots of questions we weren't able to answer. We will try and get to back to these offline and help you going forwards. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thank you.